Welcome to The Sacred Life, an exploration of the mysteries at the center of the Christian faith, hosted by brothers David and John Baylor. Today we're going to look at what is mysticism. And when we discuss mysticism, we don't have this idea that it's some kind of, um, some kind of like esoteric secret way of living or way of viewing the world, uh, but rather it's actually something that's part of our, our ordinary lives and our ordinary walk of faith, but something that maybe we're we're just not that open to. So we're going to try to discuss mysticism and what it means. And we don't uh, we don't cover the whole topic in this discussion, but it's a nice way to introduce it. Again, we speak about mysticism a lot. So what is it that we mean when we speak about mysticism? Thank you for joining us in The Sacred Life. Okay, we keep talking about mysticism, and we present that as this alternative to um, hyper-rational thinking and to dogmatic religion and all this. Um, everything that we say is like rigid um, and, and problematic in Christianity. We present mysticism as kind of an alternative to that. And since we keep referencing it, I figured it'd probably be important to just sit down and say, what's mysticism all about? So, uh, start it off for us, Dave. When you say mysticism, when you say we need to embrace mysticism, what in the world does that mean? Uh, <laughs> so the immediate thing that comes to mind for me is, uh, it's hard to define exactly what I mean. <laughs> well, but, like, that's yeah. the, actually the essence of mysticism. <laughs> no, I know, I know. In, in um, thinking about this conversation beforehand, I'm thinking, like, well, what is the definition? Although we'll try to give some nice definitions, but, like... It, it is somehow appropriate that mysticism sort of eludes definition. Well, yeah, and so, like, it's related, like, the roots of the word would be related to, like, mystery. Right. Um, and, like, that's, for me, um, I guess kind of what I'm a champion of is this idea of embracing the mystery and the unknowability mm -hmm. of things. Um, like, a rejection of this idea that we can kind of rationally categorize, draw boxes around things, and give everything its place, um, its definition. So how would you characterize that, then, as part of the life of faith, or your life of faith, whichever way you want to answer? Um, I don't know if this is actually an answer to your question, but this is what came to my mind when you asked that, is, uh, like, to me, like, mysticism, or like a mystical outlook, in the way that we're talking about it, is, uh, like a humble approach to knowing it's that um you know what i'm actually not going to solve all of the problems of faith um i realize that like existence itself and especially christianity as like the core of existence mm -hmm. like this is something that's a whole lot bigger than you realize it is and like the more you unravel that mystery the more you see like there's even yet more to it you know, I, I think, uh, I, I think often of of scientists of like the great scientists as being very mystical people, um, which is sort of an unusual thing to say. But if you spend any time with Einstein at all, then you see like, wow, this guy is is extremely mystical. Um, and I bring I bring them up right now, just because of what you said of like this this humility about knowledge right. um, and part of it is also a wonder that goes along with it and in Einstein I have wonder in mind but I actually mentioned sci scientists because I was thinking of Isaac Newton um, and he'd, he'd mentioned something about as a scientist 
he was he was like a like a child playing with pebbles on the beach and um and he would never understand like the vast mystery of, of the ocean or something like that i mean i that's i i can't give a very good paraphrase of him but um but again you have this this scientist who has this very mystical approach to knowledge itself i um, will never understand all of it um but i will i will grapple with what i can and i will remain in awe at the nature of the universe yeah and like another side of that is people like einstein and really most of the influ most influential scientists that move things forward um didn't consider themselves to have been the origin of their great discoveries mm -hmm, right and, and like and einstein I mentioned, didn't... I mentioned newton already but he's right. like the quintessential scientist who didn't consider himself to be the origin like right uh if I've seen farther than others, it's because I've stood on the, the shoulders of giants. Yeah, but like also like the fact like Einstein would have had this idea that like his great discoveries like they dawn on him. Like it's not like I'm not sitting down like this is Einstein is not sitting down and calculating and figuring figuring out and through this rational process coming up with the theory of general relativity. Mm -hmm. But rather the theory of general relativity like comes to him in a moment of insight. Well, he, he also, um, he did have like, you could say like a meditative process, mm -hmm. uh, an, an imaginative process, not what we normally mean when we say meditative, but uh, I mean like very important to to his theories was just like all the hours he spent imagining what would it be like traveling alongside a beam of light. And it's, it's, right. it's it, like in the work of his imagination that he's able to stumble upon these great scientific truths. Um, and we'll probably get get imagination into the discussion at other times as well. Um, but but you have lots of uh, um, lots of Christian writers, and uh, I guess you could say other type of mystics as well, besides just Christian writers, who say there is something to the imagination. There is a power that the imagination has to lead to spiritual truth. Right. Which which sounds kooky, but then you look at you look at the scientific comparison, and it's like, well, if 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 it can lead you to scientific truth, if it, if imagination can lead you to the general, the theory of general relativity, um, why would it not be able to lead you to spiritual truth as well? Yeah. So it's like I don't I don't quite understand exactly what it is. I've tried to research it a little bit. Can't quite pin down what it is. But like in Eastern Christianity, you have this idea of noose. Um, which is thought, but not thought in the rational sense. It's like a spiritual thought, and like maybe even some like agency of thought that is independent of your like your soul, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, not no, it's not independent of your soul, but like independent of your body. Yeah, definitely. Um, but this being like this. Uh, sort of like spiritual thought process mm -hmm. um because I, I i don't pretend to actually know what they're talking about okay well i mean it sounds like like you're still working with this idea when we say what is mysticism then you're saying it's a different type of thinking yeah um You've mentioned like a, a thinking rooted in, in humility, right? And I kind of brought in the idea of wonder that goes along with that, and, and also like like I started to mention a rejection of this sort of rational process, right? Um, definitive process. So like I, I myself like, I feel like it's accurate. I don't know if it's if it's entirely fair. I identify that as like the Catholic process in the West. Um, like going back to the Middle Ages, we talked about mm -hmm. uh, Peter Lombard 
earlier. Well, I think it's, it's I, I think that's a little unfair just because you you separate. <laughs> like that sounds like you're giving Protestants a, a no. free pass. <laughs> and, but I, I was gonna get to that. Yeah. So like that's the Catholic process, and like like what I say that as distinguishing the West from the East mm -hmm. is um, like historically we would call this scholasticism, which is this drive towards rational Christianity towards like concrete definition of things yeah so like there'd be the the, the the um the example of the sacraments where in catholicism there are seven sacraments is that correct there are seven yeah um there are seven sacraments and like defined as this and then the orthodox is like oh no like there's an infinite number of sacrament everything's sacrament um like just to varying degrees right and that being a, a difference between how definite you get with things. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and so, so like in, you mentioned, in the one perspective, you view things as definable, and right. in the other, you view things as undefinable. Right. And so, like you mentioned, Protestants, that this is like giving a Protestant, Protestantism a free pass. I guess, like, my perspective of things is that the Protestant process is the natural conclusion of Catholic scholasticism. Mm -hmm. So it's like Catholicism has this uneasy, this love-hate relationship with mysticism throughout its history, but I think it's fair to say they still sort of um, hold onto it with like this tenuous grip. Um, it's like we don't really like it, and we're probably going to declare you a heretic. Yeah. <laughs> but later on we'll decide that you weren't a heretic. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's... Um, I mean, I think that's another fascinating dis discussion. I don't want to go on that rabbit trail right now, but this idea of declaring the mystics heretics, there's, it seems like there's actually something that is appropriate about doing that. Yeah, no, like, and it, it's, yeah, like you said, that's a, that's a whole other discussion, one I would like to have. Yeah, right. Um, uh, e even though those people will enrich the tradition. Um, <laughs> well, so it's like, I think of that in, in similar terms, like Jesus... And then, like, Stephen in, in Acts, I was just reading that, so that's fresh on my mind, criticizing the Jews for killing the prophets. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is what you do when the prophets come into your midst, is you kill them. Yeah. But then later on down the line, you realize, like, oh, wait, hey, actually, they were right all along. Yeah, right. Um, like, I guess we'll just, like, kind of throw that out there as a teaser. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, um, that's fine. No, no, so... But, um, yeah, I just want to say real quick okay. on that, like... And that is an important discussion I think we need we need to have, especially like in context of trying to redeem parts of the Anabaptist tradition. It's like, hey, look, we actually need to have this connection with the institutional church that declared us heretics and cast us out. Mm -hmm. um, and like recognize that that's part of the process and always has been. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting because because uh, a lot of uh, a lot of Christian sectarianism is is groups that separate themselves out, but a lot of it is also like people that just got kicked out. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, maybe maybe it's actually you can take it as your responsibility if you've been the one kicked out, if you've been the group that was kicked out. Maybe it is your responsibility too. Right um, to heal that divide, and rather than just wait for the other guys to say he's sorry. But yeah, anyway, like going back um, to mysticism. Okay, thanks. Um, <laughs> you know, we need to throw out a little teaser. <laughs> yeah. Um, going back to mysticism, that 
I think it's also important to define what we're not talking about. Um, but first wrap up that thread, I guess, before we move on to that, of Protestantism and Catholicism. So like I mentioned, Catholicism kind of maintains this uh, uneasy relationship with mysticism. And like would today still, like they would say like, oh, we, we have an appreciation for mystic traditions in Christianity, which is true. They do, they do actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even though overall they will reject a mystical interpretation of Christianity. Yeah. Um, and then like Protestantism, for the most part, it like everything that's mystical is wrong. We can define things. And we're probably going to try to come up with some way to explain how anything mystical in, in Christianity is probably somehow linked to Buddhism. Yeah. Like, I say that because I read that all the time. So, like, an example would be hesychasm, like, which is like a meditative prayer practice in Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, it's related to Lectio Divina in the West, which is, like, demonized by Protestants all mm -hmm. the time. Right. Um, th these things are actually ancient Jewish practices. But we try to ascribe them, like Protestants will try to ascribe, like, oh, these are... Okay, uh, you better define those... Uh, I keep oh. hitting that thing, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, you better define those terms, though, hesychasm um, and Lectio Divina. I, I'm not super clear exactly on how how Lectio Divino works specifically. So, like, hesychasm, I think they both they both are sort of this, that... I know I, I can I can define hesychasm more clearly, because okay, I've studied it more. Um, hesychasm is... A meditative prayer practice that involves, like, posture and, like, breathing techniques. Like, with the idea that prayer, like, you also incorporate, like, you're, you're, you're aiming to incorporate the whole of your being, like, body, soul, and spirit, into the act of prayer. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's this belief that, uh, you know, your breathing and the way you sit... And your prostrations and all that, like that's part of the prayer process. Yeah. So, like a very easy example, if you if you're familiar with the Jesus prayer, um, it's an ancient Christian prayer and it's a big deal in Orthodoxy. The basic form of it is Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of variations on it. Um, so, like an, a very very simple example of how you. Like, that is the Hesychast prayer, basically. Yeah. So, like, how you how that works practically so you, so you is... Re, oh, you You breathe in and say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. You breathe out and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so then they tie in with that, like, you're breathing in the glory of God. Like, that's, the, that's like, the symbol for them of the first part. And then you're breathing out, like, here is my iniquity and sinfulness. Mm -hmm. And I'm placing before the throne of grace okay so w people will react against something like this uh because it looks like eastern meditation right. which is which is very focused on postures like you can yeah. think of yoga or breathing techniques focusing on your breathing um and then you also have this prayer which is not the kind of prayer that protestants like because you're you're, you're just saying words that are kind of prescribed yeah and i think like lectio divina takes that same basic idea but takes like a passage of scripture Mm -hmm. And just like repeats it over and over again and meditates on it. And yeah, yeah, on that's it. my understanding. Um, and you also, uh, a Protestant objection is going to say, well, that that's, uh, uh, well, there are lots of Protestant <laughs> objections to that. But but that the the thing I said about the prayer being just uh, scripted words, um, they're going to say like, well, you don't mean it. You're just saying the same thing over and over again. Well, so there, um, and, and there's also with that, um, uh, uh, this is the most common objection I find from Protestants is that like. 
Protestants have like an overemphasis on the rational thought process. Right. And they say like what you're doing, you're emptying your mind and, and you're opening yourself up to demons. And like my response to that is, yes, exactly. That's kind of the point. <laughs> like you're encountering principalities, you're encountering reality. That's the whole point of, of, of the mystical process is sort of like this recognition like, hey, you know what, there actually are angels and demons and we can't ignore them. And if, when I construct these boxes to keep them out, like, the, we have failed to be the church mm -hmm. at that point. Um, then you also look at, like, um, I, I, I gotta kinda set this up because I think there are things that Jesus did in his life um, that that are the types of things that you do to make yourself a better person. Yeah. Um, and and it, I feel like it's almost blasphemy to say that because it's like, well, if, if he hadn't done these things, are you saying he wouldn't have been as good of a person? Uh, I think the answer is maybe. <laughs> um, but, I, for example, like... But, the, like, the, beginning the, the, of solution, the, the solution to that conundrum is... But there's no way that was going to happen because he was the perfect person, so he was going to have done these things. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, still, like, like, there seems something, um, something uncomfortable about looking at Jesus as right. a person who grew and developed. Yeah, and like that's my, that's my, like, my answer to that question is like you realize this is a two-way street. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I, and I mean, I, yeah, he is a person that did grow and develop and we are people that grow and develop too. And right. like part of what we imitate when we imitate Christ is the things that he did so that he could grow and develop. And one of those is just go by himself and be alone, uh, in the wilderness praying, you know, like where, where there yeah. are no other people. Um, and another thing, what I wanted to mention in, in relation to what you just said is the beginning of his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and it sure sounds like like he went into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by Satan. Right. Yeah, and, and like I was thinking when I was talking about that, I can't remember uh, which, um, which person it was. I want to say it was St. Gregory of Nyssa, but I kind of think that's incorrect. Um, that goes into like an abandoned fortress to meditate and pray in order to become like a better... Christian, so mm -hmm. he can actually have a real ministry. And there are these legends of people going into this abandoned fortress and saying, like, you could actually hear him wrestling with the demons. Yeah. Like, there's actual, like, I'm sure it's, this is uh, historiography. It's symbolic telling of stories. Um, don't try to wrap your mind around it. <laughs> That's not the point of, of a story like that. Um, but, like, the, the point is, like, you're going into these, into these, practices to encounter demons mm -hmm. right yeah and that's that's the point i was making about jesus it's not like it's not like he wanted to meditate and then uh-oh satan came but like i said it, he went into the wilderness to be tempted by satan um like again to apply it to an individual's growth if you want to if you want to grow in your faith or if you want to walk we'll say the mystical path that jesus was walking then part of that is um, you need to you need to encounter uh, yeah. the dark side of yourself. You need to encounter the demons that are like you know part of yourself or part of reality. Yeah, and like we kind of skip over the fact that when like we we love the conversion story of Paul. You know he struck blind on the road to Damascus in order to persecute the Christians, mm -hmm. and 
um, like his sight is restored to him by Christianity. Um, you have, is it Ananias? Is that the name? Yeah. Um, Ananias prays over him, lays his hands, and he says it's like scales fell off of his eyes. Uh, it's like the truth is revealed to him. And so, like, this is this is a, like this is how Paul is converted and becomes a missionary. Actually, no, it's not. That was the start of the process for Paul. The next step, he goes to Jerusalem and, like, meets with Peter and James and the, the, the apostles and, like, the leaders of the church there. And, you know, prostrates himself before him. This is, I don't know if that is recorded that way in the scripture, but, um, but the idea, like... His first step is he goes to the church and submits himself to it and repents of his sin and confesses his sin. But then the next step we kind of miss over because he mentions it in one of his letters, but it's not mentioned in Acts, is that he went into the wilderness for three years and like lived as a hermit for three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so like this is the conversion of Paul, is that he goes and lives in the wilderness by himself and faces his demons. Yeah, right. Of which he, he had plenty to face. <laughs> right. And, like, you read what he writes later on. It's like, this guy, he he knows his demons quite well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, there's there's uh, even just the story with the scales falling out of his eyes. It's like, okay, this guy, this guy had some kind of profound religious experience, and that does shape you. And that does, uh, that does like, it changes the whole course of your life. Um, but there's this this other element like yeah, this right. solitude where where you you face the truth about yourself yeah and so like the going going back to the story of jesus like what happened immediately before jesus goes into the wilderness in the in the biblical account is he's baptized by john mm-hmm. so he goes and is baptized by john the holy spirit descends on him in the form of a dove god the father proclaims like so you have the holy trinity manifest in the world altogether at that point in history um, God declares this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So, like, this is the start of Jesus' ministry, right? He's baptized, receives the Holy Ghost, and, like, the endorsement of God the Father himself. It's like, okay, so now Jesus goes out and does miracles. No, he goes out in the wilderness for 40 days and is tempted by the devil. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, interesting. I mean, and, and uh, you know, back to us being a, a very rational civilization, we love rational thought. Um, we don't want to. We don't want to be with ourselves. Right. Um, if you get yeah, if you get a moment alone, like you got to find something to read or like pull up your phone and you know start yeah. thinking around on and, something. And that goes back to that, like what I was saying about if you have that like objection to encountering demons and this idea that you need to just cut yourself off and isolate from them, isolate yourselves from them and build these boxes. It's like what you're really doing, if you want to give a psychological explanation for that, which you should, because that's part of it. Yeah. It's not the entirety of it. Don't reduce Christianity to mere psychology. But, like, what you're doing is you're you're cutting yourself off from yourself. You're isolating yourself from yourself. You're wrapping yourself in rationalism so that you can, like, not ever look inward. Mm-hmm. Now I want to I want to just add something else because we've talked about mysticism as a thought process that well, instead of oh sorry you you had yeah I, wanna, there. I okay. just want to connect that back okay. to something Good. you said Go for it. before you move on so like that goes back to that statement about the development of Christ being a two way street so like it like it seems to me modern Christianity modern Protestant Christianity wants to like be always looking upward and never downward 
Mm-hmm. It's like that's not that's not to say you shouldn't be looking upward, but you should at the same time be looking downward. You're moving both ways at once. Yeah, it's a two-way street, like you like we were saying earlier. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think being like Christ means doing that sort of thing where he goes into the wilderness. Like, uh, again, you want to look upward sometimes too. You don't want to just be like obsessed with all your faults and everything. I mean, that's not that's not what facing your demons is ultimately about. Yeah, but you should at least be aware of them. Yeah, right, right. Like, acutely aware of them. Mm-hmm, yeah. Not just casually aware of them. Yeah. I mean, like, like somebody can, somebody can be obsessed with their own, their own faults in a way that isn't productive. Um, I don't know what you're going to talk about, but like, I could use this to springboard very conveniently sure, into Anabaptist mysticism. Okay. Um, so traditionally, Anabaptism has a lot of, like, we would look at them today as restrictions. Like things you do, things you don't do, ways you dress, ways you behave, um, and like all kinds of, you could say rules. Mm-hmm. And um, like in my view and like my understanding, if you go back 200, 300 years and look at the sort of spirituality and Anabaptism and Mennonites and Amish people from the past, like this is what they're doing. They're, um, it's it's a mystical practice. It's a mystical process mm-hmm. of like pushing yourself up against your boundaries by putting on something that you don't like. Yeah. By restricting yourself from things that you do like, like putting on inconvenience, putting on discomfort. Um, so like it's comparable if you study like patristics in early church history, like there'd be a practice of like if you're going through times of like Lent or um, times when you're focused on repentance or if like in a, in a conversion process of some particular individual, we'll talk about them wearing a hair shirt, which is mm-hmm. a shirt literally right. made out of hair. Like the yeah. point of it is it's, it's rough, it chafes you, it's uncomfortable and you hate it. Yeah, right. Um, so it's like that's the point of restricting yourself from things of denying your passions and of putting on rules that are uncomfortable is like it it chafes you it rubs up against your humanity Mm -hmm. and well and you can just use fasting as a simple example because for the most part people are not fasting i mean like i don't expect people that are listening to be regular fasters right and but but everyone knows what fasting is yeah just it's just this act of self-denial. You're hungry. Well, right. too bad you're fasting. You're not going to eat right now. Right. So, like, in my mind, there that, that's the point of and, our and Anabaptist. The reason, the reason people aren't don't fast right now is because it's not rational. Yeah, because, right. And that's what I was trying mystical. to say. It's, yeah. Fasting is a mystical thing. Right. Um, and, like, you can't figure out, like, okay, so how is fasting uh, moving me? Like, how is fasting accomplishing my salvation? Mm-hmm. Or how is fasting... Uh, like, I don't like to even say it that way because it is accomplishing your salvation. Well, like, um, what lesson am I learning? Yeah, right. Um, but you're still learning a lesson. Like, <laughs> um, any of the objections I could come up with, <laughs> like, they fall apart. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I think I think the lesson you're learning, though, is not a rational lesson. Yeah, that's, right. That's sort of the point. Like, if it were... You wouldn't have to fast in order to to learn that lesson. Like you could just you could just read it in an essay. Uh huh. I mean, like, and we do. 
I'd say we as Anabaptists have considerably stronger as as conservative Anabaptists. I I can't really speak for like the the left wing of the Anabaptist Church mm -hmm. at this point because I'm just I've been removed from it for so long. I just honestly have no idea what's going on, <laughs> what their practices are and aren't. But like we, I would I would say we probably fast a lot more than anybody else that's not Orthodox. I don't know if that's fair or not. Um, but like we do have a lot of teaching. Like if if you're coming up against a uh, like a serious decision, you should make that decision through prayer and fasting. Mm -hmm. um, and like there is like there is in there like an implicit mystical structure. Like okay, you have a decision to make. Um, don't try to figure it out rationally. Don't run it through your mind and do the calculations. Like not that's not a part of it, but that's not how well, you actually make decisions. Part of part of how you make decisions properly is through self denial. Yeah, right. But then the, like there's also like this very very big emphasis on like submitting your decisions to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But how do you like how do you have any idea what the Holy Spirit is saying? Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's through self denial. Yeah. And like self denial is the center point of Anabaptist. I guess you could say theology, Anabaptist spirituality. I like that term better. Yeah, it is better. But well, I, the reason I didn't use it is because it's often used to mean something completely different. Yeah. Um, but I guess I shouldn't care about that. Um, don't let <laughs> don't let people claim something and redefine it. Um, which incidentally leads like we are having a discussion about Halloween, like how Halloween is actually in its origins a Christian holiday. And has in America become something obviously corrupt, and so like, what's the solution to that? Do you just abandon it because now it's something evil? Because like, but if you take that back, ultimately what you're doing is you're saying, well, evil can just take our things whenever it wants to, mm -hmm. and we'll let it, we'll we'll give them up. Yeah. Like, no, don't do that. Um. <clears throat> which I mean, that's important in the context of this discussion because we talk about mystical practices. There are a lot of mystical practices that become corrupt. Yeah, well, and even, even when like, you talk about like all these rules that, that Anabaptists follow, and I mean, you, you you can look at the Amish as being like um, this sort of extreme form of self-denial. Um, but but you it, it kind of it kind of transforms from mystical practice into a bunch of rules that you're supposed to follow just because you're part of the community well, so, and, and everyone I mean everybody in your church left the Amish church every right most of the people that were in the church that we went to growing up were people that had left the Amish or their families had at one point mm -hmm. um, and and people are people are constantly leaving the Amish and when they do they say like they're just following a bunch of rules yeah and also like they don't have any idea like the reason for the things that they do and like I used to, I used to agree with that as a valid criticism, <laughs> and I'm increasingly moving more and more to the thought like maybe Amish are actually far more spiritual than we are, um, because it's not a rational process for them. Yeah. Like it's true. There's also a lot of uh, like emptiness and legalism. Well, there's I mean so throughout, throughout Anabaptism, there's like this constant temptation toward legalism. Yeah. Which but, is, and like, then that comes with it, like, both extremes exist at the same time. I mean, um, it's it's almost like legalism is, is just a different form of scholasticism or, or hyper-rational thinking. Um, and, and 
I mean, maybe you could say like the mystical path is sort of like the alternative to either one of those, and it's the alternative in the same way. Right. Like, legalism is you've tried to nail down certain practices. Yeah. Whereas scholasticism is like you've you've tried to nail down certain propositions, but it's it's the same thing. Yeah, man. Like that's my like my primary complaint against what we are doing now as traditional, not Amish and a Baptist conservative, like conservative Mennonites, Amish Mennonites this that whole kind of umbrella is we're replacing one form of legalism with another um, like if you look at things on those terms mm -hmm. like what we're doing is we're we're moving towards a more rationalistic take on things yeah and that puts us in the point where we are now where we're actually sort of in a like a crisis of meaning and identity yeah right because it's like well how do you how do you find purpose in the things that we're doing um, and you like you try to come up with some kind of rational explanation, and so like there might be something like, um, well, the reason you have these restrictions and do these things and that thing is to protect you from sin. It's like actually no, like yes, but mostly no. Mm -hmm. Like that is, and this is going to I guess like this explanation is going to shed some light kind of on the nature of mysticism in general. Like there is a sense in which that is true that like the rules that you protect you 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 put upon yourself stand as a guardrail against like going over the edge into sin mm -hmm. but mostly they're the opposite of, like they the polar opposite of that mostly they're like pushing you to the edges of yourself like into your sin so you see it plainly it's yeah. like well how do you have those two opposites at once it's like well that's actually kind of what mysticism is it's like a unity of opposites Mm-hmm. Which incidentally is also how, uh, like, early Christianity and ancient Christianity defines the cross and defines Christ. It's like, well, this is the unity of opposites. Yeah. This what? is, like, the cross is the it's... place where things that of themselves are opposed, and in the cross they're united and brought together. Yeah. Well, let's say you have these practices that are that are mystical in nature and they're dying off but then you have one um like really legalistic bishop in the church yeah. that that you know like enforces all these things and and kind of whips everybody back into shape and i mean you might say on the one hand like the spirit of what he's doing isn't good um but yet also maybe what he's doing is necessary in order to yeah. preserve in order to preserve what our mystical practices right um no and i i mean i actually agree with that that's something i kind of hesitate to say to a whole lot of people is that i think it's necessary for the health and the endurance of our churches that you that have the, some legalists the extremists exist yeah right well that's that's uh in society too like yeah um you don't want everybody to be an extremist but um but there is a reason why we have extremists there are lots of reasons why we do um yeah and like you run into problems with that when you like have uh, this very non-mystical notion of what it means to be a Christian and to be saved. Mm -hmm. So like basically, I would say, even if they wouldn't admit it or realize that they think this way, um, probably a majority of people, like in my kind of sector of the Anabaptist world, would have the opinion that it's impossible for an Amish person to be a true Christian. Yeah, right. Um, now, obviously, if you bring that out 
directly like that, there's something objectionable and disgusting and distasteful about it. And so they'll probably say, like, no, I don't think that. Mm -hmm. But in practical reality, like, we probably do. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I want to I bring in another point, because I, I tried to do this a while ago, and, and we brought something else up. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we touched on a couple ideas. Mysticism is something different than rational thought process. It's a different type of thought process. Um, it's a different type of, of believing in something. Um, and it's rooted in humility. It's rooted in a sense of wonder. But then we also bring in these practices. Mm -hmm. um, you engage in certain practices, and they, uh, we didn't say this exactly, but, but they sort of um, unconsciously shape who you are and, and how you look at life. Um, and that I think, I think kind of hits closer to home to the way that I think of mysticism when I use the term, um, I, I associate it very closely with, uh, just the idea of grace of receiving something that you haven't earned. Mm -hmm. Um, if you, um, this is, this is sort of hard to explain because when I say grace, then it, it, it seems like something like that just poof appeared in your life. And that's what it means for something to happen and you didn't earn it. But if you, um, if you hear a story, we'll just say you watch a movie, you know, I'll just go for a kind of a everyday life sort of example. And this movie affects you in such a powerful way. Like you start looking at the world differently. You start looking at, um, maybe your relationship with your wife differently or something. I mean like that, that can be, um, life changing for somebody, but it's something that, you didn't, um, like you're not responsible, like I shouldn't say responsible, you're, you're not the cause of the change that happened in your life. Right. It wasn't something that you were seeking out, you were just sitting there, there to watch a movie, and when you engaged in it, it, it touched you in a way that goes underneath rational thought, and as a result, you're a different person. Yeah, yeah, you did think rationally about it, you did do some conscious pondering about what's the significance of this, but ultimately there was a uh, I'll go ahead and say mystical experience that you felt in some moment during that movie and everything that followed after that, all the rational thought was you trying to make sense of what was this moment all about. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's movies that like have, have deeply affected me or stories that have deeply affected me. And I, I'm, I get to the other side of that experience and then I, I'm like, I don't even know why. Mm -hmm. and, and not just movies. Um, I, I went to the late at night one night. I, I went to the place where our family's business used to be. Our old grain elevator used to be. And I got out of the car and I, I, I kind of had this feeling like I need to go back to this place. And, and I got out of the car. Of course, our grandpa worked there and ran the business and, and he passed away long ago when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, our parents both worked there. We spent time there when we were little kids. But I, I had this feeling like I just need to go back to this place. And I got out of the car and just just sat on the railroad tracks and cried. And like I, I'm, I'm sitting there like trying to observe myself rationally. And I could not, I could not come up with an explanation of like why am I crying? <laughs> why right. is this affecting me so deeply? And I, I, I mean I could come up. I mean I could write an essay. On, on why it's affecting me. And there's a lot of good things, true things that I could say about, um, about what those people meant in my life and what that place meant in my early childhood um, and even just the sense of 
being connected with a childhood that's lost. Like I, I could come up with all these explanations, but like in the moment, it, it's it's a totally unintelligible experience. Right. So but, I know, like there's also like a, a dawning and a realization that um, fundamentally you're not a rational being. Mm-hmm. And right. Like no matter how how hard you try to box yourself in, like in this box of rationalism. Yeah. Like it's. It, well, I, I'm. It, it's not. It's you not know, work. I, I, in setting that up, I said you can look at that experience and you can think rationally and consciously about it, and that's important. You know, if yeah. it's a movie that changes your, the nature of your relationship to your wife, which is one of the things examples I gave. Okay, the the conscious thought that you put into that is really important. Like, not only has your soul been stirred, yeah. but you're looking like, okay, practically, what am I going to start doing differently in my life? And that's a rational thought, and it's it's a really important one. But it's um, it's at the service, ultimately, of this uh, mystical experience that you had. Yeah. The rational thought didn't come up with the idea that, oh, the whole nature of your relationship needs to change. Right. That, um, And if, if your rational mind had come up with that thought... It probably would not be a successful campaign, <laughs> right? But but when your when your um, unconscious comes up with that thought, when you come up with that thought through some through this uh, experience, through mystical or religious experience, um, then it's a real thing, and now your rational mind can come in and strategize. Like I say, that's extremely important. But the thing that's uh, that's leading the way, the thing that's really um, the, the vital, like, life-giving element there is that mystical experience and not the rational thoughts. Right. Yeah, and, like, that goes back, like, going back again to Anabaptist spirituality, like, a traditional, like, old, when I talk about traditional, generally what I mean is uh, what people two or three hundred years ago would have said mm-hmm. about these things is that, like, and there's still, like, vestiges of this in our tradition today. Yeah. But, like... The explanation for Anabaptist practices is basically everything is prayer. Mm-hmm. Like everything. Work is prayer. Um, hoeing the garden is prayer. Preparing a meal is, is, is an act of prayer. Um, and like and everything is also meditation. So like that goes back to hesychasm. And this is the point I kind of wanted to get to anyway is that in my mind, what Anabaptism does, and I wouldn't say this is a uniquely Anabaptist thing, I think this is a thing that indicates Anabaptism arising from out of medieval mystical tradition, is that it takes these ideas and extends them outward as far as they go. Mm-hmm. Like, extends them and applies to everything. So, like, we, for example, last well, night... Well, Jesus we were... applies it to everything, too. Right. I mean, he's, he says, pray continually. Yeah. Um, um, and and it's I like it's it's the sort of thing that's like well that that can't possibly mean anything. It's like well, let's see what we can do with that. Well, like so like historically, Anabaptists didn't have churches, like mm-hmm. buildings, and like you can come up with some kind of rational rational historical explanation like well they don't have that because like they were trying to hide and they were persecuted and they couldn't build a building and like there's some truth to that. Yeah. Um, but then when they weren't persecuted. Yeah, keep, keep talking. There was, uh, when they weren't persecuted, there wasn't like, oh, the sigh of relief, now we can build churches. <laughs> it's like, no, the world is the church. Mm-hmm. The community is the church. Which sounds like this kind of, I don't know, like, empty Protestant, like, modern 
fluffy Protestant mm-hmm. <laughs> way of looking at things, but it's it's not like it's something that's like extremely rigorous. Um, so like you take like Anabaptism and mysticism in general takes the symbolism. So like you could say the symbolism of church architecture, which is very good if like study the way a medieval church is designed and built. Like, well, this is pretty fantastic symbolism that's going on here. Um, and well, like, they take that, and it's like, okay, let's apply this to all of reality all at once. Um, which, just, just that, that simple idea of, like, stopping and recognize something as beautiful. Yeah. I mean, even that, I mean, Anabaptists don't necessarily talk too much about, like, stopping and recognizing things as beautiful. That's not exactly a, uh, the language that we use in describing things, but like that, um, it's sort of like this poetic experience of this moment that you're living in. Well, um, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that in itself is mystical experience. Like yeah, this. and there, there's also like some fascinating, like if you want to unwrap it, there's some fascinating symbolism in uh, when we were in Switzerland back 400 years ago where it was we actually met um like where the places were and they'd be like in caves in a clearing in the forest mm-hmm. or under bridges yeah it's like those are bizarre places <laughs> like what what on earth is going on here yeah. like who's gonna go and have their church under a bridge yeah or who's gonna go and have their church in a cave um well, there, like, is a, there is at least a practical aspect, which I'll go ahead and mention before you get your thing. It's like um, you want somewhere where you're not going to get caught, yeah. but that also like everybody can find it. Right. Which is, is a hard thing to pull off both of those. Yeah, but like you also just kind of, whether you realize it or not, you pick places that are just filled with inherent meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and like meaning and reality intersect. So like what you mentioned, like that's directly linked to the meaning wrapped up in the place yeah. as well. Well, it is because, oh. I mean, the cave or under a bridge, I mean, like like you're going into the belly of the beast. Yeah. Um, and that's... That is, it's like a cave. Reality does necessitate that you do that um, if your religion is against the law. Yeah, well, so it's like, is it Justin Martyr that says Christ is born in a cave? Um, like, not a barn, he's born in a cave. And, like, this cave is this, like, the bowels of the earth in this secret place. Mm-hmm. Um, like this is where Christ is manifest in the world is in the secret place. I mean, you know, like a bridge is like the uh, the 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 intersection of two worlds, mm-hmm. um, and so is a clearing in the forest, really. And like there, there's a lot of a lot of symbolism wrapped up in these places. And like these become like you you can connect this if you're tempted to and you want to be overly rationalistic about it you can you can reach back and say like oh well this is like reflective of um like pagan customs meeting in these sacred groves and under bridges and mm-hmm. sacred rocks and caves and stuff like that it's like well, well sort it of is. i mean yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i mean it's not inaccurate yeah i mean but, like it, they, it's, they they it's did hard it for to the... say it's de- descended from that like right. just because of the historical context that that i mentioned you know you're forcing these people to find places like yeah that. but it's like so i mean but, it, but, it'd, but it'd be the, really fascinating to expand on this sometime and talk about like the the mythical symbolism that's present in the land 
where our Anabaptist ancestors came from. There's a ton of it. Mm -hmm. It would be a great discussion. Well, to but it's have, like, but I wanted um, to say, but, with but the, how much is there? I mean, like, not not to say that there's not that symbolism in in in, in the Alps in Switzerland, but um, but. I guess I just want to make the point that maybe that same symbolism exists in other places as well. I mean, yeah. When, but... when we when we do this conversation, we recorded. I I've mentioned before we're walking in the woods. We're walk, walking in the bog. All right. And I mean, the bog itself is is like sort mm. of this um, this union of two worlds. Right. It's a, it's I I mean I do think of it as a place of order and chaos because you get like these these uh, swampy areas. Yeah, and like there's something lurking under the depths. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's where like the bowels of the earth come up. I mean, I, the air. I I would say um, like I I have a sort of like um, like mythical, poetic, imaginative engagement with this particular place. And and it, it is this idea of like um, you you go into the realm of chaos, um, and that's that that is part of like how you mature. I mean, that's similar to yeah, going into right. the wilderness and confronting the devil is is going into the place of chaos. So this is a bog, okay? I didn't I never read anything about the mystic symbolism of bogs, but it's something that I felt from spending my childhood in this place. Yeah, right. And and I I mean I put it into stories that I've written. I've like. Uh, I've I've really worked out the mythology of this place, you could say. Uh huh. Um, but but like all you have to do is just engage in it, and I, I think of music also as being something that's that's always intimately connected with nature. You could mention the music of Switzerland, but you can mention like any any type of music. I think I said nature, but but really the environment more generally. Um, I mean, if you're if you're making music in New York City, you're making music that engages with that environment. Yeah. But if, if you're making music um, in the Appalachian Mountains, in the Deep South, then the music that you make um, is in touch with that environment. Yeah, like, like it, it rises if, if out you're of paying the attention. Of the place. Right. And and uh, I mean, again, I think it's it's the the mystics that define that. For right. us, I mean, in the same way that it's the, it, in in the scientific community, it's the mystics who actually define what science is, and everybody else is just aping what they said in a rationalistic kind of way. Yeah, oh, well, um, like, and, the, and it's the same thing in music. Like you have these mystics um, who just break through with something monumental, and for generations, people are are imitating what they did because they don't. Um, they haven't had that same sort of mystical connection with whatever that musician was connected to. Um, anyway, um, what I what the point I wanted to get to is so like there are these there are a bunch of extraordinarily ancient oh, churches. Oh man, I want to make just one last point. No, 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 because it, it's it's the same idea um, that I just said, and we're not. I'm sure we're not going to come back around to that point. But it's like um, Bill Monroe, uh, bluegrass musician. I mean, like. The definitive bluegrass musician. Um, he's he's the guy that everybody else is aping uh, for generations to come. And he wanted his band, like he had his bandmates working in barns, taking care of horses. Right. And like there was there was no practical utility in that whatsoever. He just felt that if you're playing with this kind of music, you need to be doing this kind of work. Right. And, and that's um, it's a mystical impulse. It wasn't a legalistic. It wasn't a legalistic impulse that made him want to do that. It's not like, like here's a rule you have to follow. It wasn't a rational impulse, but it was like um, you must be transformed 
into the type of person that can play this music. Yeah, by, by working with horses, he doesn't mean like he had some hobby horses that they picked their stalls and get and brushed them. He means like, no, they hitched up a team and went out and plowed fields. Yeah. Like that kind of work with horses. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like what I wanted to say was, so like you have these ancient churches and this isn't just something that's present in this part of Europe. This is all over Europe. But these, like, I'll just, I can have, like, specific knowledge on the processes. So, like, in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, the government puts a lot of money into restoring and, like, archaeological surveys of these buildings. And so they dig up the floors and restore and uncover the old frescoes that were painted over during the Reformation, like the, the icons that were painted over during the Reformation, and do all these things. And, like, what they find as they're doing this is, like layer upon layer of church going back like all the way like in some cases like all the way back to the second century but then like underneath that there's a layer where like there are pagan tombs and in some cases remnants of pagan temples um and like i think this is the case i might have my facts a little mixed up but so there's also a church that's was in the middle ages the college of canons which for those that you aren't familiar that's where the priests lived. So they would live in like the semi-monastic community, all the priests servicing this huge geographical region, lived in this one town, and there's this great big church there that was their like home church. And it turns out that that was built on like the most important pagan temple site during the Roman era. Like they just built a church on top of it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's what, uh, like those things were in those places for a reason. And then Christianity, like, recognizes the reason that the church or the temple is on this specific spot and builds its church there. Um, and, like, tied with that is also, like, this legend that the Burgundian king has this vision in a dream of the gates of Jerusalem and that it's they're located here in this region. Mm -hmm. And so builds these 12 churches um i was like well that's a really bizarre <laughs> really really bizarre legend um but it's just like i'm bringing that out like to tie it like that's 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 mysticism mm -hmm. like it's something that if you're looking at it from this perspective of rational christianity you're probably tempted to say like that's a bunch of superstitious nonsense well, but it's really not yeah yeah, the, uh, the the building on top of pagan sites, uh, for some reason, this has never popped into my mind before, but um, but it, it, it made me think of a, a Wordsworth poem, The World is Too Much With Us, and I can't quote it very well, but he has this, um, this statement in there, like he's just looking at um, the, you could say, like the goodness of nature um, in contrast with the, uh, the hectic way people live their lives. And he says, I wish I were a pagan, suckled on a creed, outworn, I think is his phrase. Um, and then I would see Proteus rising out of the sea and like everything would have this sense of enchantment to it. Uh -huh. um, and if you're um, like, there's, there's this sense that people have like this, an, an ancient sacred site has this kind of mysticism to it, yeah. has this mystic quality to it. Um, this, I, I think it's curious that he says, I wish I were a pagan, and he also says it's an outworn creed. He says it's not true, 
um, it, it doesn't it doesn't hold up rationally but there's something in in what remains of it which is which is only the mystical element like now that the, now that there are no uh, dogmas no pagan dogmas in the world um, the the only thing that's left of it is the mystical element of it um, well, and, and so like if you if you build on that site like you're taking advantage of, of the sense of sacredness the sense of ancientness and all that yeah um, and the sense of like enchantment in the world and you're not interested in the creed the, the pagan you know the actual religious beliefs rational right. beliefs that went along with it um like i had this thought when you're talking about that like that pagan imagery and seeing like the gods manifesting themselves and so on and so forth is like to me if if i have this mystical outlook on christianity what like a similar thing in my mind is I see the cross everywhere and everything. Mm -hmm. And like by that, I don't mean like I look at something and like, oh, there's two sticks that are crossing. That's neat. It looks kind of like a cross and it makes me feel good. Yeah. Like that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, I literally see the cross everywhere. Like you look and there's the cross and you look over here and there's the cross and it's Christ's cross, not just something that looks like it. It's the actual literal cross. And like, how, well, how can that be true? Um, that was something that two pieces of wood nailed together 2,000 years ago. They brought it away, and that was thousands of miles away. Like, you're not literally seeing them. It's like, well, yes, I sure am. I mean, you, describe what you mean then, uh, like, especially when you use the word literally. Hey. You... Well, literal is a, a tricky word. <laughs> um, but so, you said it over and over again. So. Yeah, I know. And I guess it's time to kind of bring up that question um, that, uh, oh, how to put it together. See, like, I don't quite know how to express it because it's mystic. Mm -hmm. It's mystical. Um, but the cross is not merely the two pieces of wood that were nailed together. That's only, like, a tiny part of what the cross is. Which, again, like, if you have a rational view of things, like, that doesn't make sense. Like, what, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Um, and like we mentioned earlier how, like, an ancient Christian view of things, the cross, is like the intersection of realities and like the bringing together of things that in the world are in disagreement or in opposition. Um, and like you might define the cross as like the meeting, the meeting, the intersection of heaven and earth so like the vertical and the horizontal. Um, this, none of this is my own words. This is all like very ancient ways of describing the cross. Mm -hmm. um, so like when you're talking about like vertical up and down, and that's the language we use a lot even in this discussion, like you're talking about, I guess you could say symbolism and meaning or the kingdom of heaven, if you want to use a biblical term. <laughs> Um, heavenly things, spiritual things, that's vertical. And when you're talking about horizontal, you're talking about like the material, the manifest, mm -hmm. earthly. So like the cross is the point, is the place where those two things meet. Which, like that's a very mystical way of describing the cross. And so like that's what I mean, like you start to look around and you say like that is literally everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you understand like what you're seeing isn't just some, isn't some mere pattern, it's literally the cross of Christ. The, uh, the you, I mean, you can also look at those um, if you talk about your experience of of that cross symbolism. Then it's like the upward member is your 
uh, your connection with heavenly things. Right. And the horizontal is your connection with um, with what is horizontal to you, which is which is maybe nature and the environment, and it's also other people that you're in communion yeah. with. I, I'm not saying that that's not true, but I kind of don't like that <laughs> that terminology because it's like it's not only just me; like it's also something that's external of me. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, but I mean, like you you engage so, in it. Yeah. So, like, even we're talking about like Anabaptists meeting in caves or under bridges or in a clearing in the forest, and that goes back to our discussion. Like, those are all axis mundi. Which axis mundi is the cross? Is the cross? Mm-hmm. Um, like it's the center of the world. It's the place where heaven and earth meet. Yeah. Okay. It seems like I, I had another direction I wanted to go um, on. Uh, on the nature of mysticism. Um, oh, just that, so we've talked about it as being a different type of thought process and all that, um, but also it's um, it's rooted in, you might say like a quest for transformation. Um, you might also say like a, a quest for um, some sort of divine union, union with God or, or union with, with all things or whatever. I mean like the, the, uh, this, this is, um, it, it, I don't see myself as being on some kind of quest to to have an experience of unity with all things. Um, that's that's not, like not really part of my understanding of mysticism. Um, and yet, it's also present in it. It's like yeah. that's that's part of um, part of transformation and part of growth and part of connection with God is connection with those other things. Like I did yeah. mention connection with the landscape. Um, which I, I suppose in some ways I've, I've had a quest. Yeah, um, so like that would be like if we're getting into like what mysticism is not. So like a lot of forms of mysticism are like being one with the universe or being one with the world or mm -hmm, like right. unity with creation. Or like and I say like, well, like, like that's backwards mysticism. Well, I, I, I hate to say that just because that's also like a, you might say like a spontaneous thing. Yeah, like, like but... People, people don't necessarily go out seeking... Um, seeking that, but they they're like overcome with this very strong sense. Mm -hmm. um, well, so like the way I would define it is so like somebody that has that outlook is kind of like trying to get at God indirectly. Well, I mean, I I think I'm thinking specifically of of uh, somebody that I know who was telling me he was once he was outside playing with sticks, making a little house out of sticks against the the steps. This guy's like. Uh, 65 years old or something like that right now, but he was talking about when he was a six-year-old kid building this little little house out of sticks, leaning against the stairway to his real house, and and he was just kind of overwhelmed with this sense of everything is is connected, everything in the universe is all right. together and all one, um, and he was telling me this as 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 like the description of. Um, I mean, maybe maybe it would be fair to say like the most important event in his life. Yeah. Um, and and there wasn't any kind of theology behind it at all. This was a this was a six year old kid, and he was playing with sticks. Yeah. Um. So, it, but it's like this spontaneous sort of uh, revelation that came upon him. Yeah. And and so, the, like I said, I don't want to I don't want to be like too critical of that approach. Just, well, no, just because that's not what I'm what I'm getting okay. at. So, like, what I'm getting at is like what I would say to that 
from a Christian's perspective, is what he's seeing is the cross, but he doesn't realize that's what he's seeing. He doesn't know how to put it together mm -hmm. and misinterprets it. And like that's that's like this sort of Eastern mystical process is like you recognize there's unity in all things, and you mistake the things themselves as being the the the, the unity. Yeah. It's like no, like Christ is the unity, and so like if you're talking about like unity with all things like my response is no but yes like it's in christ that all things are, are uni unified mm -hmm. so it's like the way you like the way like a christian mystic goes at that is considerably different because it's aimed at the cross and that like accomplishes like this unity in christ with creation if that makes sense well it does uh it is a rationalization however <laughs> yeah i know but like that's that's the uh like that's the difficult thing with mysticism is you kind of you kind of have to present it with rationalizations mm -hmm. and then say like it, it still doesn't quite get at the point because you can't get at the point that's the whole point of mysticism yeah is that it's something you can't get at yeah so well, like I, oftentimes I mean... when you're when you're discussing mystical things you'll like you, again, you'll say opposite things. Mm -hmm. Like you're you're trying to get, and like you see this in the Bible all of the time, with like this incredibly symbolic language that, when you try to break it down rationally, it's like okay, like we think of Paul, we tend to have this idea of of Paul as like this really uh, like strict rationalistic, definitive guy. It's like actually like step back for a minute and pay attention to what Paul is saying. Like, Half of what this guy is saying is total nonsense. <laughs> like, this guy doesn't make any sense. Because mm -hmm. um, he's not. He, like, he's, he's a mystic. Yeah. Um, so, like, Paul is somebody that all the time says opposite things. Mm -hmm. Because he's trying to get at something that, uh, you know, like, he can't get at. Right. Like, he realizes, like, I'm trying to explain something that can't be explained. Yeah. And, like, that's also what I think of John's revelation. Right. When I, whenever I read John's description of heaven, or not of heaven, but of the New Jerusalem, um, like I'm all like, since I was very young, I was struck with this. Like, this is not a literal description of what John saw. Mm -hmm. What John is doing is he's trying to describe something that just can't be described. So what he ends up with is this description that if you take it literally, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. Like this can't possibly be what John saw. It just, that just wouldn't work. Yeah. So, like, you see these depictions all the time of people calculate the size of the New Jerusalem and put it on a map of the United States. It's like, well, this is how big New Jerusalem is. It's like, I think you missed the point. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I, I want to get back and, and make a couple comments on transformation because we started talking about this idea of unity. Yeah. Um, and, and just to say that the rational approach... Um, is not a call to transformation, and it and it never is, and it cannot be. Like right. the the left brain is not is not interested in transformation. Yeah, it's interested, um, it's interested, in, interested like, in understanding and nailing things down. And yeah, gathering together. It. Right. Yeah, and uh, um, and uh, like if if your approach is rational, what you do is you say, man, I wish I had all the answers. So that when when an issue came up, I could just have the perfect answer and defeat it, and and make my point and my side would win. Mm -hmm. um, and and I I mean like that's that's kind of like I guess just the 
a, a great way to represent what is rational thinking and and what is a uh, maybe not rational thinking but like a rational value system that's what it is um, and, and a mystical value system, on the other hand, is like a quest for transformation. You don't seek knowledge so that you can prove that you're right, hmm. which is almost well, nonsensical anyways yeah. if you think about it. Like, you, you seek knowledge as a means of transformation. Right, and like, so there's a good illustration, and this would maybe be a good thing to close with, but you kind of need to wrap up here. Um, yeah. So I was having this conversation with a guy I work with the other day who likes to get into religious discussions, but is also like a very rationalistic person. Mm-hmm. And so he'd bring up these things, and I just kind of, you know, we were having fun with it, and just kind of egging each other on. And he'd keep saying things, and I'd come back with things, and at some point, he just kind of got a little frustrated. He's a young guy, um, like 17 or 18 year old, so doesn't quite know how to <laughs> put everything together yet, which mm -hmm. is fine. He's figuring it out. Just at one point, just kind of got frustrated and said, like, I don't feel like you're actually trying to, like, share and discuss and come together with me. I feel like you're just trying to, like contradict everything i say and all this like and i and and when he said that it's like well you're right that's exactly what i'm doing like and you'll notice that through the, throughout the course of this discussion i've never said what i think yeah like instead i've just come back with okay here's a counterpoint to what's being said and like sometimes even what i'm saying i'll come back to it with a counterpoint of it because like what i'm engaging with in is a, a mystical process of okay these things aren't simple, and we really can't nail them down in this way. And here's all the reasons why our own thought processes will fall apart. Mm -hmm. And like that's kind of like my 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 thrust whenever I have discussion or engagement with somebody about like deep theological things, is to get them to see how rationalism breaks down rather quickly. Mm -hmm. Once you start right. prodding at it, it's like, well, the only way you can actually do that is to actually prod at it. Yeah. And sometimes that means prodding at your own ideas. Mm -hmm. Like, he might be saying something that I actually agree with, but I'll still try to po find the holes in it. Yeah, right. Um, I guess my uh, my last comment I'll make is, is to say, um, I brought science in here before. I guess I kind of brought literature in, but I'll mention it again. Um, I teach English classes. And when I do, um, I mean, you imagine yourself, you've taken English classes, and you've probably had this sense that the, the teacher tries to bring in a, a rational understanding of literature, and it's pointless. Um, if you can, you know, if you can identify different types of, of figures of speech that were used in a text, um, and e even the way that we approach theme uh, and symbolism is just like, well, this thing means this thing and this means this, then at the end of the day, it's like, well, who cares? Um, who cares that you were able to explain everything? And so I'm always, I'm always like trying to insist upon the importance of non-rational thinking. Right. When you're engaging in a, in a piece of literature, uh, the rational approach of breaking it down, you can do it, but it actually is pointless and when it feels pointless <laughs> there's a reason for that you know when you're a student sitting in that class and you think why am i wasting my time with this well you're pretty justified in thinking that because you're you're in like a totally vain exercise and so what you want to do instead is you look at that and and let it let it speak to you in a level that goes underneath your conscious mind let it speak to you in a way like 
regard it as something that has the power to transform you. Well, I would say, like you said, goes underneath your conscious mind. Like I'd say, like goes underneath, but also above. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that may be fair. I mean, I, I have this the idea of the subconscious right. in mind when I say that. Yeah, and like I'm trying to bring in like, but there's also like a spiritual reality mm -hmm. that's above. Yeah. Um, and and so it, it's the same thing. Like that's that's the same approach that we take to to religion and the discussion. It's like, yeah, sure, you can you can argue these things, you can come up with these propositions that make perfect <clears throat> sense, and you can come up with rational justifications for them, but there's no point. Right. You want to look at faith as something that has the power to transform you. You 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 relate to God as something that you you can pursue and that can transform you and that you can become like. Um, it, I mean, it's it's all of that is rooted in transformation. Well, yeah, and so it's like and well, not in understanding. So it's like when we have discussions, like in a Bible study or something like that, about like events in the old testament and we discuss okay so like how did this uh like these stories with daniel or something like that okay so like how can we trace back who these kings were and like prove this through the historical record that this actually happened this way mm -hmm. and so on and so forth and i'm always like sitting there frustrated when we're having these discussions it was like how does this how is this transformative yeah <laughs> how is this moving me in any direction at all mm-hmm Okay, well, I think that's a, a pretty good place to wrap it up. Yeah. Um, mysticism is transformational, and yeah. it's, it's rooted in, in humility. Right, and, and also, and like, awe. end with that challenge of, like, your perspective on things and your 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 interpretation of things. Like, okay, so how is that actually transformational? Because if it's not, then you, know, like, you better find a better, a better way of going about yeah. things. Right. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support this podcast then all that we ask is for you to subscribe, think of a friend who might enjoy it, and share it with them. And please join us again for another walk in the woods, another conversation, and another journey in the sacred life.